Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Christopher Ryan. Chris Ryan is a writer, a podcaster, and the author of the best-selling books, Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death. During our conversation, Chris talks about his interest in human nature, Native American culture, humanity's origins as hunter-gatherers, and what we can learn from the environment and the general culture that shaped our psychology. He also talks about the dawn of agriculture and why that event, which occurred independently numerous times, is arguably humanity's biggest mistake. If know thyself is the bedrock of wisdom, we must first understand who we are, where we come from, and how we evolved. Chris's perspective may allow us all to better understand and prioritize the important aspects of human life, how we work, how we love, and what's worth valuing, especially for those who are struggling and suffering in modern civilization. I love his irreverence, his intelligence, his independence of mind, and his unique lifestyle. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Christopher Ryan. Chris Ryan, it is a real privilege for me to do this, man. I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, I'm honored that you would do this. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks, man. Um, I thought maybe I would start with a comment that I heard you say years ago that always stuck with me, which I think kind of dovetails into the the work that you're you know most known for, Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death, which is, if I remember correctly, you said if you could pick any place in time to live, you would probably pick the 14th or 15th century in the San Francisco Bay Area. Not today, <laughs> not now. And right. that was just an, an observation from a modern person I don't think I had ever heard before. And maybe to kind of begin the conversation, I'd love to start by asking you why you had that as your response. Um, well, you know, generally, since I've been a kid, I've been, you know, that my first intellectual passion was Native American culture. So, yeah. you know, like the first book that really got me riled up that I ever read was Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Um, which is highly recommended to anyone who wants to understand something about the sort of first contact between different tribes and uh, European colonialists. Um, so I, I, I've had deep respect for the way that a lot of Native American societies were organized for a long time. And but there are exceptions, of course, They're like the Pacific Northwest up around Seattle, Vancouver, they had slaves, they were hierarchical, they were very warlike. They were not uh, what anthropologists refer to as immediate return hunter gatherers, um, because they smoked salmon. So they had accumulated resources. And one of the arguments that I tried to convey in Civilized to Death is that generally, we anthropologists, look at agriculture as being the sort of pivotal moment when people shifted from hunter-gatherer existence to a more settled, hierarchical um, sort of suite of 
factors and behaviors that we now associate with agriculture. But there are also what anthropologists call complex hunter-gatherers, which are people who do hunt and fish and don't grow much food, but they still have accumulated resources. In this case, it's because they were able to preserve salmon by smoking it. Hmm. And what you have in those societies is you see the same sorts of um, social configurations arise as with agriculture, because it's not about grain, it's not about salmon, it's about having a lot of accumulated resources. And that creates these class systems where someone needs to decide, you know, how to organize the harvest and how to organize the preservation process and where to store the food and how to distribute the food over the rest of the year, who gets what, and that's what creates your class system, basically. Um, and then, of course, you have seasons or years where the harvest fails, whether it's grain or the salmon run isn't as big as expected or whatever. And so now you don't have as much food as you thought you were going to have. But those people down the river have a lot of salmon. So now you've got a raiding society, you organize, you know, military excursions and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. Whereas with hunter gatherers, true immediate return hunter gatherers, that don't accumulate resources, there's no point in war. There's, there's no class system because there are no accumulated resources to preserve and distribute and all that business. Hmm. Um, so having said that, I would love to live in a Native American society that did not have accumulated resources because that would be just as bad as feudal Europe in some yep. ways. Um, so that's why the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, to my knowledge, uh, the people who were living around there were immediate return hunter gatherers, but they were in a in a land of plenty. Uh, you've got incredible sea life along the coast. You've got very rich river systems emptying into the San Francisco Bay. Um, and it's just one of the places on Earth that is just it feels like it's a sacred place because it's so startlingly beautiful yeah you know rio de janeiro is another place like that you just like you get up on one of those hills and you look around and it's like man this with no city here no people just the way the land and the sea and the rivers converge it's created just an incredibly beautiful spot um so I think that's probably what, why I said San Francisco Bay, you know, because there was a lot there. They were hunter-gatherers, so life was probably pretty easy. There wasn't a lot of fighting or struggle going on. And, um, you know, what's, what's the downside of San Francisco? Earthquakes. If you're living in a hut, earthquakes aren't a big deal. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, my hut's falling on me. Well, you know, it's no big deal. You'll, you'll be fine. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I lived in San Francisco for a while in the nineties and uh, yeah. And it's, it's just one of those places I've lived all over the world, but there's something about San Francisco that just feels unique. The light, the fog, the smell, the, just the feeling of that spot on earth feels really interesting to me. Yeah. I agree with you on that. I think I, as I mentioned, I, I lived there for a long time as well. You know, I think um, personally, what draws me to your work, what I've been so interested, why I've been so interested in your work for so long is, you know, your your work tries to touch on 
you know, as best we can understand it, our nature, our, you know, what it means to be human, what, who we are, you know, the oldest, you know, wisdom being know thyself. And both of your books touch on, you know, trying to get a better, better handle on what it means to be human, what, what our nature really is, where we come from. And this is a very vague question that I'm sure, obviously you have spent a lot of your career and your life thinking about, but what are the misconceptions, the big misconceptions even today that you see in our civilization that are mistaken, that, you know, to you are uh, important to, for any person looking to live a flourishing, healthy life to, to really learn and to maybe course correct from what we were taught, what we tend to be taught in our, in our own civilization, in our own, in our own culture. Well, I, I think it's important to understand that all civilizations, societies, cultures, systems, corporations, families, you know, any sort of energetic system like that, um, like any living thing wants to preserve itself. And so mm -hmm. it is self-promoting, right? So everybody is told, all kids are told, you are so lucky that you are French or that you're British or that you're Belgian or that you're American, USA, USA, whatever culture it is, everyone's told and educated to believe that they are the chosen ones, right? They're the special ones. And it's not just civilizations in hunter-gatherer societies. This pertains as well. Like, you know, if you look at the names of of course, a lot of them have been anglicized, but you look at the original names of various tribes, almost always what the name means, Lakota, Comanche, Navajo, Diné, whatever it is, it means the people, yeah. right? So we are the people. I don't know about the rest of you, but we are the people, right? So, um, so that's a very basic sort of universal human tendency. And I think it's important to apply that to ourselves. It's something that uh, the great mythologist Joseph Campbell called detribalization. It's when you have lived long enough and been around the block enough times that you start to realize like, wait a minute, I am also from a tribe, right? I also have an accent. It's not just everyone else who has an accent. It It's like applying you know, Einstein's theory of relativity to human affairs. It's like there is no static, stable perspective or vantage point from which to view this in a yeah. Newtonian sense, right? It's like everything's moving, including the observer. And so I think that's a really important thing for people to understand and to, to be able to look at their own society, their own moment in history and say, wait a minute, I've, I've received a lot of propaganda telling me how lucky I am. Let's really look at this objectively. Let's try to step outside the biases, um, you know, that are part of the package and, and look at this from a more objective perspective. And that's what I tried to do in Civilized to Death to say, wait a minute, how, how good is civilization really? Right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you can, you can always choose your outcome by choosing what you measure. So just the other day on Twitter, um, Michael Shermer, who I've had on my podcast a bunch of times, and he's the editor of the Skeptic magazine. He's a very famous skeptic. He's written a bunch of books about skepticism and so on. And he tweeted something where he, he was like, 
progress is real. It's gradual, but it's real. Just look at, and then he list, listed like five things. I think it was infant mortality rate, and I don't remember what the other ones were. And it, it's so frustrating because it's like, sure, dude, if you look at those five factors, progress is real. But that doesn't seal your case because you could look at five other factors like suicide rates, like depression among teenagers, like the number of adults who live alone and suffer from social isolation, like obesity and diabetes and heart disease and these things. If you choose to look at those factors, then progress isn't so obvious, is it? Yeah. And it just frustrates me so much that people don't, they're not skeptical about the cherries they're choosing to pick, yeah. you know? So I think to answer your question, I mean, I've already uh, gone around in circles a bunch, but I would say the most direct, memorable things that I question are what Hobbes said you know, famously in, I think it was 1651 in Leviathan, where he wrote that before the advent of the state, human life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Now, Hobbes knew nothing about hunter-gatherer people, of course, and what he was doing was looking around at an extremely violent, extremely unhealthy, extremely brutish and stressful time in European history and saying, well, you know, he was making the mistake I was just describing where he was saying, you know, I'm so lucky to be alive now, mm. even though he almost died of chronic diseases. He was expelled from England on threat of death. And then he lived as a refugee in France for years. Uh, and then he was expelled from France on threat of death. Uh, I mean, his life was not great, yeah. but he thought it was the pinnacle of human existence, like most people do about their own lives. And uh, he looked at prehistory, what he you know, conceived as life before the state and said, well, it must have been much worse. That's based on no data whatsoever. As it turns out, um, you know, as I tried to demonstrate in Civilized to Death, depending on what you choose to measure, uh, human life in prehistory before the advent of the state was arguably much less solitary, much less poor, much less brutish and nasty, and nowhere near as short as life was in medieval Europe. Hmm. Civilized to Death. Uh, which is one of my all-time favorite books. In its research, it features two of my other favorite all-time books. One is very well-known, Sapiens. The other is not nearly as well-known, which is Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes. That book was one of the most formative nonfiction books I've ever read. I probably read it 10 years ago. And in a different life on a different podcast, I got to talk to Dan Everett about that experience and maybe i can just set this up for you to you know give your own thoughts on the major ideas and observations of those two books and specifically for sapiens and you kind of hammer on this point in civilized to death that one of the most or if not the most formative moment in the history of our species was i think what he calls something like um like the worst deal ever made for humanity, which was the dawn of agriculture. And I just want to set that up for you to be able to speak about the people of the Piraha 
in the Amazon, which I, you know, to me really seems to map onto many other experiences of anthropologists studying hunter gatherers throughout the world and what they tend to find um, related to the roughly speaking the happiness the leisure time the sense of you know collegiality and community that they find in these hunter-gatherer civilizations and then also the the moment that really seems to have transformed us from tribal hunter-gatherers to living in these sort of hierarchical systems and i think if if anyone is interested in understanding our own psychology our own preferences it, I, it to me it really helps to understand that for 99% of our history roughly speaking we were living completely different lives than we are now it's a long way of putting that but i i just want to put those two data points to you and i'd love to get your thoughts on on both of those points and how they you know kind of formed your outlook and kind of the the reason why you wrote the book in the first place yeah the the phrase um agriculture was the worst mistake in the history of the human race uh, which I believe is quoted in Sapiens, is actually from um, Jared Diamond, mm. who, who wrote that originally in, maybe it was the third chimpanzee, and I'm not sure which book it was, um, but he wrote that in, back in the, probably in the 80s or the 90s. Um, and it's an idea that has been percolating since a famous paper uh, was presented at uh, an anthropology conference, I think in 1970, maybe 71, 72, somewhere around there by uh, Marshall Salins called the original affluent society. And it was later uh, expanded into a book. And that was really the first time that any kind of mainstream anthropologist had looked at hunter gatherer society and questioned the Hobbesian paradigm that it was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And what he, Salins, pointed out was that, like, we look at hunter-gatherers and we say, well, they don't have anything because what we're looking at is possessions because our society is based on possessions. Mm -hmm. And, but if you look at hunter-gatherers in terms of quality of life, then they don't look so poor. Mm -hmm. They have lots of free time. They work very little they don't even have work the word for work in most languages work being something you'd rather not do mm. the things that they do that anthropologists are measuring and calling work are things like fishing and hunting and going for walks in nature these are things we do on vacation right but they're saying okay well that's work because that's how they get their food look at nutrition, look at chronic disease, look at their sex lives, look at how much time they get to spend with children and telling stories. And then you start to get a very different picture of hunter-gatherer life. And, you know, the problem with all social sciences is to avoid a failure of imagination, right? In, in uh, our first book, Sex at Dawn, that I wrote with Casilda Jetta, we use the phrase Flintstonization, where you look around at your life and you look into the past and you say, well, it must have been like this, just more primitive, right? Mm -hmm. So we, they had cars, but they had to like run with their feet through the, you know, like the Flintstones. Uh, it's hard for people to, to recognize like, no, no, it, 
it's totally different. It wasn't a version of this. It wasn't an earlier version of now. It was mm. something totally radically different. So when you when you get to the point where you're able to study hunter gatherers from a more imaginative perspective, you see, as one anthropologist put it, that even though they have nothing, they act as if they have everything, right? And so I recounted a lot of these charming interactions between Dan Everett and the Pinaha people or, you know, missionaries in Canada in the 1600s, the Jesuit told, wrote about uh, how he was by this big fire in the, um, the Huron people and they had caught a bunch of beavers and they'd invited all the people from the neighboring neighboring villages over for a big feast. And this Jesuit said, well, but why are you just eating everything now? Why don't you save some of those beavers for tomorrow and the next day? And the Indian was like, well, we'll catch more. And he said, well, what if you don't? And he said, then we'll be hungry. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, <laughs> this makes perfect sense. And you find this way of thinking in societies all over the world. Um, Casilda, who grew up in Africa, told me this beautiful expression, which is um, the best place to store extra food is in your friend's stomach. Yeah. Right. It's like this is a ubiquitous way of thinking. If you have extra, share it because then they'll have extra and they'll share with you. And that way we take care of each other and that way we all survive. That's the way hunter gatherers think. Um, and so, yeah, it's if you try to look at hunter-gatherer life from the perspective of hunter-gatherers, then you see that they're actually very rich mm. um, because their environment provides everything they need. So they don't need to accumulate a bunch of stuff, a bunch of stuff around because whatever they need, medicine, shelter, food, it's all there. It's all just around them. It's like if you had a, you know, a visa card with no limit and you never had to pay any fee mm. you could just go through life buying whatever you needed well you wouldn't carry a bunch of stuff around would you you'd just go mm. through the world with your visa card and you need a new shirt you'd get a new shirt you need some food you'd you know charge it up that's how hunter gatherers live everything's mm. free everything's available all you need to do is know where to find it and how to dig it up or pick it or whatever um Anyway, so the, the Pinaha thing was, was wonderful because, of course, Dan Everett is a great writer and he, his personal journey is really interesting, uh, as he recounts in that book, um, where he originally went to the Pinaha as a missionary to convert them to Christianity. And he was a gifted linguist, um, so he's one of the only people who can speak their language and he wanted to, you know, later he went to, I think he was at MIT and he got into a big dispute with Noam Chomsky yeah, about yeah. how the brain processes language and all this. Um, but originally he just went there to convince them that the way they were living was wrong. And over the years, they ended up convincing him that the way he was living <laughs> was wrong. And, and there are these beautiful anecdotes. Where, like I remember one where he's, he's, just been there briefly but long enough that they like him and you know they can communicate and they one of the things about the pinaha that's so interesting is that they're they're sort of like the ultimate zen beings they live in the moment they're not worried about the past they're not worried about the future 
And in fact, they're quite impatient about abstractions. They're really like now, like they don't have words for direction. It's toward mm. the river, away from the river. Mm. And they don't have abstract words for color. It's like, no, it's it's the color of this tree in this moon, or it's the color of this animal in this season. It's not, there's no red, blue, there's no abstractions. Um, and I remember this, one of my favorites was he'd been, you know, proselytizing. And at some point, one of the elders took him aside and said, um, you know, we like you, but you got to stop talking about this guy, Jesus. <laughs> and as a missionary, it's like, that's what everybody has wanted to say to every missionary ever, you know, because I, I remember the whole, the preamble was like, they said to him like, okay, so, Dan, did you know this guy, Jesus? And he's like, no, no, Jesus lived long ago. And, uh, did your father know Jesus? No, no, long before my father. Did your grandfather know Jesus? No, no, before my grandfather. And they're like, okay, Dan, that's it. No more about Jesus. <laughs> we don't want to hear it. If your grandfather didn't know Jesus, then, you know, forget about it. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I feel like so much of and of course, this is my personal bias on this stuff because this is what I happen to be interested in. But I feel like so much of modern life is an attempt to return. Mm. You know, like every fucking religion, every religion tells you to be in the moment, right? Yeah. And why do we love dogs? Why mm. do we love animals? Because they live in the moment. It's this refreshing connection to immediacy. Children, they live in the moment. Oh, it's so beautiful. We're all up in our heads. And so, you know, there are all these Instagram influencers telling us to live in the moment. And, you know, you go study meditation and do a Vipassana retreat and do your ayahuasca and whatever the fuck you're into. It's all about getting back to living in the moment, yep. which is hunter-gatherers, right? They're in the moment. Like, why is hunting so interesting? I, I have very little experience with hunting. But when I went hunting, I was smelling the air. I felt the breeze shifting on my face. I was listening to everything. I was really so tuned in. I didn't give a shit if I killed anything or ate anything. It was just the experience of being so in the moment was really interesting. Yeah. And I think that, you know, until we got into this whole agricultural mess that we're in, that's what everyday life was like for everyone, which is why we're always struggling to get back there. Yeah. One thing uh, that came to mind as you were talking about the Piraha is, um, if I remember correctly, one of the things that Dan learned is, while he was learning the language, like you said, he was this ling linguistical genius who was one of the first people, maybe the first person ever to really understand their own language, is that when they would assert a factual claim the the grammar or the the language itself was set up such that you had to provide how you knew that information if you saw mm. it if someone else saw it and told you if you deduced it by something that you saw and so they were i think if i remember correctly he he regarded them as sort of natural scientists because they were always interested in being connected to reality um 
anyways, that that and I I love that story about Jesus. It's one that I I've told friends many times because I, I think it's just so hilarious. Um, you know, you, you used the word earlier, imagination, and I thought the the part in the book Civilized to Death where you go into the detail of how we we being people began to transition from you know our tribal hunter gatherer um you know societies that we tended that we lived in for for generation after generation for eons into being you know farmers essentially and what what likely led to us making what i think many people would argue i I think you would agree with this was a massive mistake for all of us what is that story as as best we understand it now why why the shift what you know i think to me when i was growing up there was this view that this was the beginning of the evolution of humanity that this was really the demarcation of us beginning to live better lives but as you go into detail in the book it it really led to some really existential problems for us that we you know arguably have never really recovered from yeah i think that we need to understand that you know every step that's taken in terms of um development of society and and even development is the language is very biased right because development is a good thing right you develop it's good you want to develop right um you want to advance you want to move forward you want to progress yeah um but you know diseases also progress cancer progresses right um catastrophe advance you know so it's the words have this bias, but in fact, uh, in a logical sense, there there is no assumption of positivity with these things. It, you know, as in evolution, people think that evolution is a process of refinement. It's not. Yeah. Evolution is just a process of adapting to a changing environment, right? So, you know, the salinity of the ocean changes and the fish evolve. The ones that can't handle the change salinity die, the ones that can reproduce. And you, you know, that's how that's evolution. It doesn't mean they're better fish or, or healthier fish or they're, they're just the fish that happen to evolve. So that's the first thing I'd want to say, like, let's not assume that, um, any movement is movement toward a better state. It Mm -hmm. isn't. Mm -hmm. And so what happened with agriculture and agriculture arose at least five or six times in different parts of the world independently. Mm. So, um, you know, in Southeast Asia, it was based on rice in Peru and and the Andes. It was, uh, corn, I guess. Yeah. And, and also in the Southwest U S um, and, uh, in the Middle East, the sort of fertile crescent, it was progenitors of rye and wheat and, and grass seeds. And um, anyway, uh, it arose in different parts of the world independently, hundreds of years apart. And basically, if you look at the new data around climactic shifts that scientists are able to 
pull out of um, ice core samples and um, sediment cores that they take out of the bottom of ponds. And so they can look back tens of thousands of years and see what pollen was in the air at a given time. And so, of course, the pollen is a reflection of how much it was raining because more rain is more flowers, is more pollen. Um, so what you find is that preceding the advent of agriculture in these different places, there was a period of increased rainfall followed by a sudden reduction in rainfall. And so what scientists surmise from this is that human populations were expanding and contracting in response to the richness of the environment, just like every other animal's population does. Um, when there's more food, more babies survive, they grow up, they reproduce. When there's less food, people die earlier, they get diseases, et cetera, mm. or they move. Um, but population in that region is reduced. And so there was a period of reduction. But then what happened was somebody, or maybe it was an accident, but somehow probably water was brought to an area that was withering, whether it was fruit trees or nut trees or some other source of food that now that the rains had reduced, those plants weren't growing and somebody dug a trench or a stream changed direction or whatever and brought those plants back to life. And people noticed like, oh, wait a minute. We don't need to just look for food. We can actually manipulate the environment in order to create food. And so that's the first step. I think the first step was probably digging a trench from a stream or a river over to some trees that were withering and like, ah, that's why they're withering. They don't have enough yeah. water and we can bring the water to the trees. And now you've got an orchard and now you've got something to defend. And now you've got, oh, we can plant more trees and then we can get more water and population starts expanding and expanding. And so the first people weren't thinking, oh, we're going to be agriculturalists, right? The first people were just like, fuck, we're dying. We're starving. Hey, I got an idea. Let's dig a trench, right? Mm. That was a great idea. Whoever thought of that saved a lot of lives and was a hero or a heroine. And, you know, that was a really good move. They had no idea what that was setting into place, right? Mm. That that was going to result in aircraft carriers and, you know, fucking Starlink. Um, but that's how it happens. And so in Civilized to Death, I told the story about a guy, uh, Brian something, I forget his last name, um, but he was a Scottish tourist in California, and he and his wife wanted to take a balloon ride, a hot air balloon ride over the vineyards. And so they went out in the morning, and they were setting up the balloons, filling them with, with uh, you know, the burners, filling them with hot air. And a breeze came and the balloon was like half full, it was half inflated. And, and it's the guys who were working the balloon were having trouble holding onto it. And this guy was, Brian was like a, a personal trainer or something. He was like a fit young guy and he jumped in to help him and he grabbed the, the basket of the balloon and the, the toe, the guide ropes holding it down, the anchor ropes broke. And all the professionals immediately let go, but Brian hung on. He didn't know to let go. He wasn't a professional. He was 
he was just trying to help out. And he rose up above the parking lot over a few minutes, higher and higher and higher. And then he couldn't hold on anymore and he fell and he died. Hmm. And when I read about this, obviously it's fucking tragic. Here's this guy just trying to help out and look what happened. But I was struck by an interview with the sheriff and the sheriff said, we don't know why he hung on. Yeah. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Of course, you know why he hung on. He hung on because every time he thought I need to let go, it was already too late. Yeah. Right. When he was 20 feet off the ground, he was like, shit, I should have let go half a second ago when I was 10 feet off the ground, but I can't now. And then when he was 50 feet off the ground, he was like, shit, I should have let go even 20 feet off the ground. I might have broken my legs, but I probably would have survived, but I can't let go now. And it just, that's the wheel. He got on that ratcheting wheel. And I think that's what agriculture was, right? Once, I mean, I don't know when people, if they ever started looking at agriculture and saying, "Eh, this wasn't such a great idea. But whenever that was, it was already too late. Yeah. His population had grown so much and, you know, people didn't know how to live off the land as they had. There were too many people anyway. The the climate had changed and so on. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up with that same narrative, right? Like, oh, agriculture was the beginning of civilization and gave us leisure time and art and blah, blah, blah. What a wonderful thing. Whoever invented agriculture was so smart nobody invented it it was just something that happened and once it happened it was impossible to go back yeah there's a quote from your book that i'd love to read which i got this idea initially from one of my other favorite books which is sebastian younger's book called tribe which i bet you've probably heard of before and sure i've read it love it i love it too and it's something that i want to i want to read out because i i've come back to this over and over again as just such an interesting fact of of history And it's, this is it. And this is from your book. In a letter to a friend, Benjamin Franklin noted how little interest Indians had in joining civilizations. Quote, they had never shown any inclination to change their manner of life for ours. When an Indian child has been brought up among us, taught our language and habituated to our customs. Yet if he goes to see his, his relations and make one Indian ramble with them, there is no persuading him ever to return. Unquote. And when white children get got a taste of Indian life, generally due to having been kidnapped, they also preferred it, according to Franklin. After their rescue, quote, in a short time, they became discuss- they become disgusted with our manner of life and the care and pains that are necessary to support it and take the first good opportunity of escaping again into the woods. I'd love to get your... Uh, take on this you already mentioned some of the and this is again themes that you hammer home in in civilized to death of the you know the second order consequences the downside of civilizations and this is something i remember your friend uh joe rogan mentioning of how modern people in his assessment are there are just aspects of their own needs that are built into the human animal that are not being activated and are not being fulfilled. And you already talked about some of the you know issues of modern civilization and the suicide rates in wealthy countries and the depression rates, the anxiety rates. 
and this is something I, you know, one of the reasons why I really wanted to to talk to you because a lot of people I think agree with you that this is a major, a major problem. And I'd love to, you know, you mentioned your, you know, your interest from sounds like the time you were a little kid in Native American cultures and what we might learn from them in terms of, you know, how modern people might be able to take a page out of their playbook and integrate as best they can some of their own practices that might lead to a healthier life in people that are living in, you know, Western cultures who are living alone, who, you know, work at jobs they don't particularly enjoy or maybe outright hate. They have a boss they don't like. Uh, they have bills to pay. You know, you talked about this, I, I know, a couple of times about how, you know, the stressors of modern life, like paying a mortgage and fearing an audit, these are things that, you know, people in prehistory just never had to face. And I, I just love to give you an opportunity to talk to, you know, and uh, people that might watch this or listen to this who agree wholeheartedly with a lot of what you say, but are in, you know, are interested in you, any advice you might have or any knowledge you've gained from studying hunter-gatherer tribes or, or Native Americans that maybe it, it might be worth them integrating into their, you know, day-to-day -day life. Well, yeah, I think the first. You know, the first step to any kind of freedom, I think, is to question the premise. The problem is people who don't know to question the premise get sucked into a no-win situation, right? So, um, you know, would you rather be ruled by Exxon or Facebook? Well, you know, you got to question the premise. How about yeah. neither? right? Um, do you want to have a really soul-crushing job that pays pretty well or a less soul-crushing job that pays really poorly? You know, like, is that, are those the only two options, really? So I think question the premise, first of all. Question the premise, particularly if you're American, because American society is, in my opinion, extremely pathogenic. Pathogenic meaning it creates pathology. It creates sickness. Hmm. Um, and so if you're trying to be a good American, you're going to end up sick and obese and surrounded by a bunch of shit you don't need in debt and with no friends. That's the ultimate American, I'm afraid. <laughs> I hate to trash America, but, you know, um, again, I've detribalized and there are things about America I love, uh, but American culture is pretty fucked up and is not designed to increase well-being among the people. It's designed to increase profit among corporations. Mm. So, you know, first step is to recognize that, that society is not your friend. Society culture is in fact promoting things that are very bad for you. So, that's the first step, right? And and it gets back to where you started, know thyself, you know, mm -hmm. and and who what are you? And what my work, both the books that we were talking about are motivated by this idea of trying to give people a more realistic sense of what sort of animal Homo sapiens is. In Sex at Dawn, it's in terms of our sexual evolution, and civilized to death, it's more of a broad consideration of how we raise children and um, you know, w 
uh, how society interacts with our bodies and our minds and our spirits to create health or, or disease. Um, so if you, if you sort of have that skeptical view toward the values of your culture and step back and say, okay, let's forget about what society tells me is going to make me happy. What actually makes me happy, right? Society's telling me I need a bigger truck. I need a bigger house. I need to drink this beer and, you know, this soda. And I, you know, need to go on vacation in Cancun and I need a boob job or I need to like get to the gym and work out till I look like Joe Rogan or, you know, but do any of those things demonstrably make people happy? Very rarely. So what really does make me happy? And if you start doing, you know, it, everyone's saying, do your own research about vaccines or, you know, whatever the, the thing of the moment is. But I say, do your own research about what makes you happy, what makes your life meaningful. And what you're going to find, most people are going to find that the things that make them happy are the same things that made the Pinaha happy. They're the same things that make hunter-gatherers happy. So if you want to make your dog happy, it's going to be the things that make wolves and coyotes happy. It's mm -hmm. going to be part of a pack. He's going to get to run a lot. He's going to get to, you know, chase things. He's going to get to eat fresh meat. You know, vegetarian dogs are miserable, sick creatures because mm -hmm. the way they're living is totally out of alignment with the way they evolved. And that applies to humans as well. So... I'm not saying we all have to, you know, shed our clothes and put on loincloths and go, you know, hunt deer with bows and arrows. But I am saying that to the extent that we can understand that there is a reason that these things resonate with us, because we've got millions of years of evolution coursing through our veins. There is a reason sitting by a campfire is super relaxing. Mm. The wavelength of a fire happens to be the wavelength range that relaxes the human mind and gets you ready for sleep. Mm. That's because we evolved looking at fires, right? Mm. There's no mystery around that. It's not hippie hocus pocus. It's that's how we evolve. We evolve sitting around fires, looking at the fire at night, telling stories with our friends, joking, having sex, singing, making music. That's how our species evolves. So, of course, that makes us happy. That makes us feel content. Um, same thing with food. If you can eat food that is not processed, that you know where it came from, um, from animals that were not exploited and didn't live their lives in miserable cages, um, then you are going to be healthier because mm -hmm. the health and the, the lack of anxiety in that animal will come into your own cells. If you can sleep when you feel like sleeping, like how many people yeah. wake up every morning, every day begins with yeah. like the ugliest sound possible yeah. to jar you out of your dreams. If you can arrange your life so you wake up when you wake up, that's a huge benefit. And it shouldn't be considered a luxury, but it is because our world is so fucked up. But things like that, time in nature, time away from screens, especially at night when you're getting ready to sleep, because the wavelength of a computer screen is not the right wavelengths for the brain to relax. Um, 
you know, the number one variable for human health, uh, for death by all causes, is all-cause mortality, which is when you just look at, like, how many people of different cohorts die from anything, whether it's heart disease or diabetes or cancer or whatever. Um, the number one predictor of death is whether or not the person feels embedded in an intimate social group. So do you have friends? Yeah. Do you have someone who will take care of you if, if you need help? Do you, does someone have your back? If you have that, if you have that feeling, your likelihood of, you, you know, the, the, the sort of factor of increased mortality, if you don't have that, is similar to smoking a pack of cigarettes every day. So it's more important than whether you smoke, it's more important than what you eat, it's more important than whether you drink, it's more important than your body mass index, it's more important than exercise. Feeling that you are part of a community of people who love and respect you is the best thing you can do for your health. Yeah. Why? Because we are an incredibly social species. Because that's how we survive for millions of years. Because we were part of a hunter-gatherer group where when I couldn't go and hunt because I'm sick, I know you're going to hunt and you're going to share your food with me. And when you're sick and I shoot a monkey or whatever it is, I'm going to share with you. That's how we survived as a species, sharing. Now we're in a society that tells us don't share, hoard, keep it for yourself, only for your children, only for your wife, only for this. That's not the way we evolved. As I said, we evolved storing extra food in our friend's stomach and vice yeah. versa. And so anything that we can do to bring our lives into alignment with these very basic principles of hunter-gatherer life, egalitarianism, mutual respect, low anxiety, dignity, mm. right? Hunter-gatherers don't have a boss. Mm. There's no boss. There's, there's not even any coercive power. If so-and-so wants to go to the river and I want to go to the lake, Nothing stops me from saying, see, I'm going to go to the lake, right? There's no, no one can fire me, cut me off from resources. I know where the resources are. Everyone knows where the resources are. There are other hunter-gatherer bands all around. My cousin's over there. My brother's with this one. The woman I used to sleep with is in that one. I can go stay with them for a while. So that's how we evolved. And anything that contradicts that sort of evolutionary tone creates anxiety at best and debilitating disease at worst. So my advice to people is figure out how our ancestors lived, at least get the basics by reading one of my books or Sapiens or the, you know, Jared Diamond's books. There are many books. Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes is a great yeah. resource. And then bring your life into alignment with that as best you can. Maybe it's just a fire pit in the backyard and instead of watching – the news and getting all stressed out, you go and you sit out there and you look up at the stars and you hang out and you talk with your friend, you know, it could be as, as minimal as that. And it'll have a major effect on your life. Yeah. Thank you for that, Chris. And, um, you know, I was talking the other night about this, about how, you know, I think you use the word propaganda and how so much of, you know, the messaging and we're both, you know, I think Americans and, what you are bombarded with from a very early age are is the commercial culture that we have in 
convincing you that you you know need things that you don't already have and it, to me there's you know some overlap here with the original sin notion that also pervades our culture which is that you're born sick and only through mm. your devotion to you know uh, uh, at least a uh, a fussy and often evil god can you be redeemed and the you know and one of the things that i think just interests me about your own life because you know you're somebody who has published two best selling books you're obviously an extremely intelligent guy um you know you have a phd i'm sure you could be you could have gone in a much different direction if you wanted to you know if that would but you seem to have really bucked the cultural incentives at least the american cultural incentives and I, it just in knowing you through your podcasts it seems like you have created a life for yourself that resonates and that you know you typically just really enjoy and i guess i'm mostly just curious how the hell did you do that you know what what were the <laughs> what what were the kind of decision points maybe for you that you know, yeah. where money was dangled in front of you where status was dangled in front of you and you just decided you know what like this is not this is not me this is not a life that like you said kind of is going to allow me to not have a boss that's not it's not going to allow me to wake up and sleep enough and be around a campfire when i want to what you know if anything comes to mind there i'd just be interested in how you've been able to pull this off and what seems like you know a pretty great success for you well, I, I mean, I, I think that uh, I've always been, probably because of what I said earlier about that passion for Native American cultures, um, which, you know, from the time I was 11 till I was 14 or so, I came home from school, took off all my clothes and put on a loincloth. I mean, I was... <laughs> I was into it. Yeah. I was like, you know, like if I'd had different parents, I would have ended up in a psychiatric hospital probably. <laughs> um, so I, I had very early on, I had a lot of skepticism about the dominant American culture. I just never felt like it made sense to me. You know, um, my parents were wonderful people. My dad was a wonderful guy, but my dad believed in the work ethic. My dad was like, you work hard and you get ahead and you, you know, and, um, and I, I just remember as much as I loved him, just always thinking like, ah, I don't know, man, I, I don't know. And I remember at one point he and I were talking and I, I said, you know, it, it occurs to me that there are two currencies in life. There's money and there's time. And I can always get money, but I can never get time back. And he just sort of looked at me. I think I was probably 18 or 19. And he was like, fuck, you're right. You know, and, and our relationship, it's kind of tragic in some ways that, that as I grew up, he started to come to see things more my way. Um, but by that point, he had spent most of his life yeah. working really hard. And, and of course, I only had the leisure to question these things because he had worked so hard and gave right. me the time and comfort and lack of worrying about where the next meal was coming from. So there's a generational yeah. symmetry there, I guess. But, I mean, to get to your question, I think the first thing was I knew at a very young age I didn't 
want to have kids. Mm. Um, largely because I felt having kids means I've got to be tied into a relationship that is going to change. And I might decide I don't want to be in anymore, or she might decide it. It means I'm going to be tied into like a need for some kind of financial stability. Um, because I moved a lot as a kid, my, my dad changed jobs and sort of went up the corporate ladder. And so we moved from place to place. And I went to three different high schools and was always the new kid. And I didn't want to do that to my kids if I had kids, because it was quite painful. And so I was like, okay, if I'm going to have kids, I'm going to have a job. I'm going to have a career. I'm going to, and that wasn't me. You know, I knew very early on that wasn't me. And also I credit, to be honest, I credited psychedelics a lot um, because I got into psychedelics in college. And what I took away from those experiences was a sense of like, wow, life is not what they're telling us. And, you know, question the premise. And, um, you know, life is going to be, this is a quick trip. Mm. And I don't owe anyone anything. And my parents were such beautiful people that the only thing they ever wanted from me was that I be happy. So there was never any pressure of like, we want you to be a doctor and have, give us grandkids and none none of that. So it's like, you go live your life and fucking enjoy it, you know? Mm. So I, I had a great luxury in that sense. So, you know, and then as I just kept in some ways civilized to death, I felt was a book that I kind of was obligated to write because it felt like taking this childhood passion that I had and adding decades of study and Mm. research and, and speaking for people who have been so demonized, you know, that they're fucking savages and, and they're primitive and they don't know how to live. And, you know, we're so much better than them. And I just felt like someone on our side of the wall has to stand up and say, you know what, we're not better than them. In fact, they're better than us in a lot of ways. And people who have been on both sides of the wall prefer to be over there, you know, Mm -hmm. as Ben Franklin pointed out. Um, there are a lot of objective reasons to look at this situation and say, why is it that every time hunter gatherers get introduced to civilization, they say, fuck this, and they go back, right? And every time, almost every time someone from civilization is integrated into a hunter gatherer society like Dan Everett, he's like, wow, you guys have it made. This is awesome, you know? I, I mean, that's, to me, that's, if you're going to try to, compare you you need to take those voices very seriously um so yeah and, and then you know i've I, I did have money dangled in front of me uh a guy offered me a million dollars to stay at my job uh, wow. i think i was i was 26 maybe uh, i was living in in manhattan i was working for this millionaire and and we'd become friends and I, I wanted to go backpack around the world and he wanted me to stay. And, and he said, well, look, by the time you're 30, you'll have a net worth of a million dollars. And if you don't, I'll write you a check for the difference. And so it was like, okay, three more years in New York. And then I can retire at 30 with a million dollars. And I said, no, and eventually, not right away, I thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> and some things happened. The universe spoke to me. 
And I, I quit that job and got a one-way ticket to New Delhi in 1986, probably. Um, so, yeah, I, and also I've been very lucky in the sense that I've had experiences without paying the price in some ways. Hmm. Um, like I got the, I hitchhiked to Alaska uh, in 1983. I was in college. I skipped a year of college. And I hitchhiked to Alaska and some shit went weird and I did some stupid things and I ended up getting arrested and put in prison uh, in Fairbanks. And I spent Memorial Day weekend in prison. It's a real prison, too. I use that word intentionally. It's not a jail. It's not a holding cell down at the police station. It was a medium security prison. Wow. And uh, so I got to spend four days in prison. And because the guy who um, did the the intake, um, he was cool and he... So it was me and and this friend of mine, and he put us in the gym on cots. He didn't put us in with the general prison population. He didn't put us in a cell Hmm. Um, because he knew Tuesday morning we'd be out, and he didn't want us to get raped and murdered in the meantime. And uh, But we were with the other prisoners all day, you know, and meals and whatever was going on during the day. We just slept separately. And he said, like, you guys stay together all the time. You go to the shower together, you take a shit together, you do everything together, and you'll get through this okay. I was 19. Wow. Um, Yeah. So I got to have that experience without paying the price for it, you know. Um, And so it was good in the sense that it could, not just prison, but the money in New York and all this other stuff, I could kind of see – you know, and then when Sex at Dawn came out, suddenly I was a best-selling author. I was given a TED Talk. I was on TV. I was getting interviewed for all these movies, documentaries and stuff. And so I saw what fame is like. Mm. I met lots of famous people, you know, and I could see, and I was already in my 40s at that point. So, you know, I wasn't like a 22-year-old who was learning what the world is. And I could see, like, yeah, these people aren't happy, hmm. you know? It, it's, a, it's a conundrum, I think. It's like politics. Like, if you want to be president, you shouldn't be president. Yeah. The person who should be president is the person who has zero interest in being president. But everyone else is like, you are so smart. You make really good decisions. Could you please take over for a while? And that's how politics works in hunter-gatherer societies. If you show any interest at all in being a leader, people think you're ridiculous. They laugh at you. And so it's the opposite of how the incentives are structured in our society. And I think that's why hunter-gatherer societies are much healthier for the individuals because you don't get somebody who is seizing power because they've got some large inflated fragile ego and they need to prove something to their daddy who is you know more famous than them or their wife who wants to fuck someone else or you know they they're not driven by the sense of insufficiency yeah um whereas our society is to the point where it's even articulated i mean there was a commercial i was living in spain but i saw this commercial i think because it was like it was it was like on the Super Bowl or something. It was a really big commercial. It was probably 10 years ago or something or more. But it was this guy, 
and he was like, he was getting ready for work. He was going through, he's got this big house and he's, you know, putting on his tie and, and getting all ready. And he's talking about how great America is. And he's like, yeah, the, you know, the French have a long lunch, but we get shit done. And, you know, the Spanish take a siesta. Well, you can have your siesta where, you know, I've got a Cadillac. It was a Cadillac commercial. It yeah. was all about like never content. And he's like, you're proud that you're never content. Yeah. What the fuck kind of life do you have, dude? So you're not content with your wife. You're not content with your kids. You're not content with your house. Never enough. And you're proud of that. That's yeah. pathetic. Yeah. So I don't know what your question was, but I hope that answered it. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, a, co a couple things that came to mind in this, and I, I mentioned this before we started recording that I've, I've spent a lot of time in, in Brooklyn in the last couple of years and you know your work and I think the influence that you've had on just the um kind of the space that you have given for uh you know romantic and dating options is probably most notable in places like Brooklyn it's it certainly is <laughs> I think here in Austin but you know I I Portland. would be remiss in Portland and Los Angeles and other major city centers I'm sure and elsewhere but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't you know, talk to you a little bit about the book that you just mentioned that kind of you know put you on the the fame map and the the major argu arguments that you you put in. I mean, that, the book is now years and years old, and I would think most people who are listening to this are probably familiar with you know the major arguments of the book. But I think it it probably is still worth kind of rearticulating if you're open to it. The 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 major theme of that book and I, I i know one of the things you write in that book uh you and casilda that you're not even sure what to do with the information um that it's you know it's interesting and probably informative for people to know this about you know human nature um but i'd love to give you an opportunity to just sort of lay out the the primary arguments of that book and and also if there's anything that you've changed your mind on in the roughly you know decade or so since the book has come out um anything you have to say about that i'd love to hear yeah well the central argument of the book is is essentially the same argument as civilized to death just focused on sexuality which yeah. is you know we are animals we are a particular kind of animal and our society has dramatically and tragically misinformed us as to what our natural state is, resulting in a lot of unnecessary suffering and self-blame and shame um, for people who don't measure up to the standards that society has told you should come naturally and easily to you, yeah. right? Um, so in terms of sexuality, the, the research is overwhelming the the data coming from anthropology so looking at hunter-gatherer groups and how they deal with sexuality and and relationships um looking at the human body how does our body how is the design of our body uh, a reflection of the sexual behavior of our ancestors right our testicles are outside the body they produce a certain number of sperm cells the penis is shaped a certain way we, when we have sex, we do this repeated 
thrusting action, which is not common to other mammals. We are interested in sex when the female can't get pregnant, which is exceedingly rare among mammals. There are just a handful of mammals who have sex for non-reproductive purposes. All of those, humans, chimps, bonobos, and dolphins are highly social species living in complex multi-male, multi-female groups um, that have co-opted sexuality uh, for a sort of a social adhesive to keep the the social group working well Hmm. um the fact that women have multiple orgasms or at least are capable of it totally makes no sense given the conventional view of women as being sort of passive not interested in sex one partner only trading um you know kind of like what i was saying about the hobbesian narrative in civilized to death that life before the state was solitary poor nasty brutish and short which that book is largely a counter argument to that view sex at dawn is a counter argument to the conventional darwinian vision of human sexual evolution in which women trade fidelity for goods and services from a particular man who's going to take care of her and their offspring in return for hunting and protecting her you know that's the mainstream view you look at the data there's no reason that that view is ridiculous it's pure flintstonization or projection um hunter gatherers don't live like that as i said earlier hunter gatherers share food so the idea that a guy's gonna go out and shoot a deer and bring it back and only share it with his woman and their children is not only illogical because there's Mm -hmm. no refrigeration what are you going to do with the rest of the deer it it isn't supported by the data the people who studied hunter gatherers refer to them as fiercely egalitarian and one of the absolute worst things you can do is not share food with everybody else um so you know there's just no reason to believe that uh yet people like steven pinker continue to argue that that's how hunter gatherers live and like dude read one fucking paper one paper and you'll see that that's not true but it fits into this paradigm that they have so they stick to it um but the the basic argument in civilized to death is that humans evolved uh as a relatively promiscuous species that sex is primarily uh, a way of establishing and maintaining complex social networks in which we evolved and that we are attracted to sexual novelty just like we're attracted to novelty in food and in travel and in movies and in music and in everything else we're a highly intelligent species that likes sensation and new things and to explore and so the idea that you would meet one person and that would be the only person you'll ever be attracted to the rest of your life is utterly ridiculous now as you started out saying what you do with this information is totally up to you and sexaton is not a book of advocacy it's not mm-hmm. saying anyone should live this way or that way it's simply saying if you choose to be monogamous you know my parents were totally monogamous they i think they only had sex with each other ever in their mm-hmm. lives and they had a beautiful marriage and and i feel very lucky to have been raised in that kind of a st- stability um that uh, that you know 
I think resulted in me being able to ask these questions. So I, I feel a lot of gratitude and, and a lot of respect for people who choose that, mm. but understand that it's a choice mm. and understand that it's going against millions of years of evolved appetites. Mm. And if you have that understanding, then you'll probably be better at resisting those urges because you won't feel debilitating shame every time you're attracted to someone else. Of course, you're going to be attracted to someone else. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your marriage. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your partner or wrong with you. It just means that you're homo sapiens. That's what we are. And so I often compare it to vegetarianism, right? Like you can be a vegetarian and it can be great. It can be ethical and healthy. And, you know, if you do it the right way, it can, it can be fantastic. I've got nothing bad to say about it, but just because you've chosen to be a vegetarian doesn't mean bacon stops smelling good. Yeah. Right. And so if you think it should, and if you think every time you salivate, when you smell bacon, you're a bad person and you're going to go to hell and it's because you haven't worked hard enough, you're never going to relax into your vegetarianism, right? You're always going to be struggling against this temptation. So that was what we we're trying to do with sex at dawn was just say, let's reassess the premise, right? The, the premise that marriage should be easy. Monogamy should be easy. That's a false premise. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that, Chris. That's, that's great. And I, um, I know we're getting a little bit short on time and there, uh, there's no way I'm going to get through all the things I would love to, to talk to you about, but a, a couple more that I'd love to go over. And I know, I know how I want to close this conversation, but before we, we do uh, close with a, one last thing I want to get your thoughts on. One of my favorite clips from your great podcast, Tangentially Speaking, is about, it's a clip I've listened to many times and it, it gives your view on ambition in general. And this won't surprise people who have just heard you speak for the last 75 minutes or so, but you have a very non-American perspective on ambition, to say the least, that I mm -hmm. think if I'm remembering the quote exactly, you have a deep suspicion of ambition. And I think this is connected to a lot of what you've said previously, but I'd love to, I'd love to get you, give you an opportunity to speak again about how you think about our culture's, you know, um, fetish with ambition being a virtue. Um, you can take that however you'd like, but I, I knew that was something that I wanted to talk to you about because I, I found that clip that where you spoke about this in some detail so interesting. Well, I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier about there being two currencies, time and money, right? Yeah. And I think the problem with American ambition is that it's focused on the money or fame, you know, which is another kind of currency, I guess, um, or power. But the thing is, those are all illusions, right? You can have all the money in the world. I have a friend who lives on a mega yacht. Hmm. I met him when I gave my Ted talk, he was hmm. assigned as my chaperone. This guy's millionaire, very wealthy guy. A nice guy, really good guy. Uh, he made his money on wind farms, so hmm. not even any crime, you know? Yeah. He's on the good side of history. Um, but he lives on his mega yacht, and it's like, I'm talking three stories, jacuzzi, walk-in freezer, 
you know, like Russian oligarch kind of mega yacht. And I remember I was, I was on the yacht with him. I think we were in the sea of Cortez cruising around and I went into the, the freezer to get something. And I saw that all the food in the freezer was Kirkland brand hmm. from Costco. Yeah. And it's like, okay, we're on a mega yacht. We're on this, you know, $50 million boat, but we're eating the same fucking food that I eat at home. It's Kirkland. It's Costco, you know? And, and I think, you know, that's kind of an image of this, like people live in these big houses and, you know, driving Maseratis and private jets. They're taking a shit just like you and me. They, you know, they get up in the morning and their back hurts and it's not that great. It really isn't. In fact, it's a giant pain in the ass in a lot of ways because you got to be suspicious of people who want to be friends with you. Why? What's their agenda? What are they trying to do? They want to pitch me some kind of business thing. They they, they want to hang out because I get tickets to the Knicks game. It, it's just a bunch of bullshit. And so if you're going to be ambitious, be ambitious for meaning, be mm -hmm. ambitious for love. Be ambitious for pleasure. Those things aren't toxic. Mm. And you don't need to be rich. You don't need to fucking sell your soul or work 18 hours a day or, you know, go work on Wall Street with a bunch of douchebags to get there. There's You get there directly. It's, it's like you don't need to be an altar boy to have a connection to the supernatural. Right. You don't need to bend over for some crazy priest pedophile in order to speak to God. You can speak to God directly. And I think it's the same thing with ambition. You don't need to do all these things that society's telling you to do to get to the promised land of happiness. You can go there directly. Just go mm. and don't waste your time on all that stuff. Right. What really makes people happy, like we were talking about earlier, things like sitting by a fire, you know, hanging out with kids, telling stories. The one thing, if you're depressed, if you're feeling unfulfilled in life, and this is scientifically verified, the one thing that is most effective in making you feel better is helping somebody else, hmm. preferably somebody you don't even know. Hmm. So it's not somebody where you expect something back from them. You are just paying into the universal bank account by doing something good for someone else. That will make you feel better, guaranteed. Why? Because that's how we evolved, right? There's a survival benefit to helping other people. One of the most moving things that I found in researching Civilized to Death was I got into, I was looking into disaster sociology. <clears throat> and which is the study, I didn't even really know this existed until I stumbled into this stuff. Um, there's a book called Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Solnit. That was the, the main source that I used for this chapter. And disaster sociology looks at how people behave in disasters. And of course, the standard narrative tells us that when the state collapses or fails, we're like chimpanzees. We just rip each other apart and we steal and we rape and we pillage and we become Vikings, you know? Um, but in actuality, 
what sociologists find is that in disasters, people help each other. Hmm. They help strangers. The neighbors you might have never spoken to in your apartment building down the hall, suddenly you're asking if they need anything and you're sharing resources and like, I've got extra candles. Great. I've got a, you know, butane heater. Uh, people get together and they help each other. And one of the most moving things was she quotes, um, I forget the, the guy's name, but he was like the founder of disaster sociology. And I think he got a start in World War II studying how Germans responded to different bombing campaigns where they were trying to break the German spirit by bombing their cities. And what they found actually was that when you bomb their cities, they got more cohesive and yep. more defiant, and they were actually stronger than before you bombed them. So it was counterproductive. Anyway, this guy, he was retired, and he said, you know, after all these years studying how humans respond to disasters, I've come to realize that most of them look back at the disaster as the best time of their lives, because that's when they felt a sense of meaning, a sense of belonging, that they were part of a community, that they were helping other people. He said, I realize now that the real disaster is normal life. Fuck. Yeah. You know? So that, I mean, that sums it up for me. Like, if you're going to be, um, there, there is reason for ambition, but ambition for things like meaning, mm -hmm. kindness, compassion, community, love, respect. Be ambitious for those things. That other stuff, it's just a distraction from the real game, the real yeah. goal. That's my advice. And when you yeah. asked earlier, like, how have I met, you know, how has my life become the shape? It's just that I realized at an early age that that stuff's all, those are false gods. That's not worth trading anything of value for. Yeah. I remember reading um, Walden by Henry David Thoreau when I was, you know, probably 17 or 18. And he says, a man's wealth is best measured by the things he can do without. And I just thought, man, that's so smart, mm. right? Like simplicity. What do you really need? You know, I live half the year in a van, which is cheap. Awesome. I built it out with a friend of mine. Um, and you know, I go to Idaho national forests and Colorado and Wyoming. And I mean, it's one of the best things about America. You can just drive off into the woods and hang out. Hmm. It's awesome. Really high quality of life. You know, I'm eating good food, Kirkland brand, <laughs> yacht food <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, sitting by a fire, having a good time with people I love, looking at the stars, sleep till we wake up, go to bed when we want. I mean, what can be better? It's yeah. awesome. And so much so of that. You don't need is, a lot of money to get that. So much of what you just Sorry. said too, it's it's is free, right? It's our birthright. It's it's right. um it's either not expensive or totally free in in being ambitious for those things. Um man, I can't tell you how much I I have loved this and I really have benefited so much from your work and everything that you've done in your career. So I wanted to just say that and say thank you before we close down. And the last thing I wanted to to bring up with you is some, I love this line and it's something that I, I've heard you speak about in uh, past interviews about Joseph Campbell. And I think this is correct that on your more optimistic days, 
you know your your take your positive spin on what might be happening in our in civilization generally is a course correction in our collective turning towards home and that mm. that you know it you know, maps on to a lot of what you know Joseph Campbell uh, wrote about and the hero's journey which seemed to have you know parallels in basically all or the origin story and civilizations across the world societies across the world through history and you know you you talked about you know some of the things that you like about America and you know I think you and I are probably in agreement that there's plenty to to criticize but I'd love to maybe close on on putting those rose-colored glasses on and putting on an optimistic you know view from your yeah. perspective of what might be happening you talked about you know psychedelics earlier you talked about being ambitious for things that are are free and being ambitious for for love and for freedom um and i've had plenty of conversations on this show about a lot of these subjects and i'd love to close with you know uh, maybe getting your thoughts on what you think might be happening as people are you use this phrase earlier which i love which is you, you realize that these were false gods that you know what was being asked for people to be ambitious about wasn't worth it and how you might see uh you know a civilization like our own you know begin to turn and um how you think that might you know be realized and and mo probably most importantly how that might actually help people whose lives are unfulfilling and filled with anxiety and and needless suffering um i'd love to give you a chance to to close on that well i think you know there's that cliche about uh every crisis being an opportunity yeah. right and i think <clears throat> that kind of resonates with what we were just talking about with disaster sociology. So nobody is ever wishing for an earthquake. Um, but as it turns out, people who survive the earthquake look back and say, that was a really good, meaningful time in my life. I miss those days, you know, yeah. when we were all living in the rubble and helping each other. And I feel like we are living through a series of catastrophic economic collapses, um, war, the war in Ukraine is quite serious and, and threatens to get much more serious at any moment. Um, there are dramatic shifts happening on a geopolitical level, uh, right now. And, and those are causing, um, you know, they, they've, they've sort of destroyed the status quo. And so I think that what's happening is that a lot of people, young people in particular, are looking at their lives and saying, okay, I can't do it the way my parents did it. It's not that I don't want to, it's that I can't afford to buy a house. I don't have job security. My dad worked in the same company for 20 years. That's not going to happen for me. Uh, you know, 20,000 people got fired today at Google, 18,000 yesterday at Amazon, Microsoft laid off 15,000 two days ago. It's shit's hitting the fan, mm. um, particularly among this sort of like young, uh, smart, ambitious, tech savvy segment of society. And I think that a lot of those people are looking for alternatives. 
they're looking for a way to live without going into lifelong debt, 30 year mortgages. Um, people are really interested in uh, getting their food from a non-industrial source, right? Um, I mean, I know there, it's easy to make fun of the kind of coastal elite grass-fed beef kind of vibe, but I'm in Colorado and I buy food from a local farmer. There's a yak farm down the road. Mm. There's this Mennonite couple that drives into town every Thursday with their eggs and their raw milk and their you know, cheese. And it costs less than the grocery store. And I'm buying it directly from the people who grow the animals and slaughter the animals and you know so it's possible to reconfigure your life in such a way that you can reduce dependence on the grid whether it's the food grid or the energy grid or the medical industrial complex or whatever it is and i think that a lot of people are looking for ways to do that now and it's sort of a resurgence of the 1960s counterculture movement. It's like that wave, you know, it came in, it washed back out to sea, and now it's coming in again. And it's mm -hmm. probably coming in, you know, higher tide this time, I hope. Mm -hmm. um, the reason I'm in this little town that you and I talked about earlier is that I wanted to try to create a community. Yeah. Not like a Manson, you know, free love, everybody give me your money community, but like, let's take care of each other, right? Let's, so we found this little village where land is really cheap. There's no building code and you can pretty much do what you want hmm. and it's beautiful. And so we came here, we bought some land, some friends have come and bought some land. So we we all have like a central place where we keep our tools and i mean i'll tell you a story crazy story that just happened oh i sent the actually you and i talked about it before we started recording so we want to build this place we have an idea of what it's going to look like and we're going to probably do hempcrete and you know rough timber framing with timber from the mountains near here and this guy calls me yesterday and says, hey, I got a bunch of windows. Do you want these windows? It turns out they're exactly the size and shape of the windows that we want. And it's going to be way more windows than we'll ever use. So we're going to buy a container and we're going to bring all these windows down. And all our friends are going to have all the fucking windows they could possibly want when they're building their places. So that's the way we're trying to replicate this hunter-gatherer vibe. Yeah. in a practical 21st century way, right? So everybody owns their own land. They own their own house. You know, it's not a free love commune, but it's you guys are raising chickens, so we're all good on eggs. She's got goats, so we're all good with cheese. He's got a backhoe, so when we need to dig the trench, you know, whatever you can contribute and take care of each other so we're you know trying to do that on a macro scale and i think a lot of people are doing that a lot of people are looking for ways to take care of each other and disengage from this corporate dominated system that people understand much more than ever before uh is designed to exploit us it's not designed to help us you know, I, I always think of that insurance commercial, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Fuck State Farm. I want a good neighbor, yeah. right? Let's go back to the good neighbor 
and then we don't need State Farm. So I think, I think that's what's happening. And I think, you know, a lot of what looks like or feels disruptive and uh, scary, you know, uh, is a step toward um, a healthier way to live. You know, it's like, I'm doing a thing on my Substack, uh, a series this year where I'm looking at things I disagree with, where like people I think are really full of shit, but finding a common ground with them, mm. like finding, you know, like anti-vaxxers, yeah. right? Like, I don't think fucking Bill Gates is putting chips in vaccines so he can track you. But I do think there's good reason to be very suspicious of the intentions of big pharma, yeah. no doubt. And so I think to the extent that that whole anti-vax thing is fueled by suspicion of pharmaceutical corporations and what their agenda is, I think it's a good thing. Hmm. It might express itself in ways that are destructive, difficult to, to integrate, but I think the energy saying, you know what? I mean, even pro-Trump, like, I think Trump's an idiot. I've always, I've, I knew about Trump in the 80s when I was in New York. He was an idiot then. But I do think the people who voted for Trump as a way of saying, fuck Washington, D.C., they're not doing anything for me, and they haven't done anything except rip me off and destroy my downtown, they've got a good point. And mm -hmm. there's a reason for that anger and skepticism. Mm -hmm. So anyway, you know, if I'm feeling optimistic, I feel like these destructive forces, these corrosive energies uh, are leading to a better place where people will be more dependent upon each other and less dependent upon corporations and governments that really don't have their best interest at heart. Yeah, that's a good place to stop, Chris. Um, man, I, I've loved this and um, I want to thank you again for not just doing this, but for you know, just being you and sharing your work and your ideas with the world. Um, I've just found them so interesting and worth considering. Um, and I'm honored that you would give me this time, man. It was awesome to, to meet you and get to talk. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate the care you put into your, your questions. You obviously gave this some thought. I appreciate that. My pleasure, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.